MSW Media. News was wearing daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, October 12th, 2020, the Beans Come True edition. Today, Trump may have accidentally declassified the Mueller report and BuzzFeed is asking the court for it. Elliot Broidy is cooperating with the feds after being charged with acting as a foreign agent. Durham comes up empty handed. Trump calls on the Department of Justice to indict his political rivals. Former special forces sought by private security company to guard polling sites in Minnesota. Cyber Command is disrupting the world's largest botnet ahead of the election. More information about Trump's taxes comes out of the New York Times. Pompeo revives the Clinton emails. ABC confirms that supporters who attended the White House campaign event this weekend were paid. Louis DeJoy gave Trump nearly $700,000. And a quick reality check for Senator Schumer, who thinks he can stop a quorum in the Senate Judiciary to advance Amy Coney Barrett. I'm your host, A.G. Hello, everyone. Big show for you today, including an interview with whistleblower expert and attorney Stephen Cohn, along with a chat for our Flip It Blue segment with the Democratic candidate for Michigan's 6th District for the U.S. House of Representatives, John Hoadley. And we will wrap everything up with the good news, as usual. To submit your good news, personal or political, or a quarantine confession or a correction, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click Contact. Also, this Thursday, Dana Goldberg and I will be recording the final episode of the Mary Trump Book Club with Mary Trump herself. So patrons, you can submit your questions by using either the link in the description of the latest book club episode or by heading to the Facebook group and grabbing the link from the pinned announcement. Uh, We'll also be emailing that link to you to submit your questions, um, and that's for our patrons. So make sure you check your junk folder if you didn't get that message. Uh, That episode will come out Saturday, and thanks to our patrons for donating uh, one-year premium memberships to those who can't swing it, those who are in need. We've had hundreds of memberships donated. If you want to donate a one-year membership for just 36 bucks or sign up to receive one, that's on the bottom of the main page at dailybeanspod.com. You can do that there. We have a lot of news to get to today, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. My favorite story of the weekend, we'll call this the lead, springs forth from the foamy head of a Trump tweet. Uh, on October 6th, Trump tweeted this masterpiece on Twitter, quote, I have fully authorized the total declassification of any and all documents pertaining to the single greatest political crime in American history, the Russia hoax. Likewise, Hillary Clinton email scandal, no redactions. Well, be careful what you wish for, shitbucket, because as we all know, BuzzFeed and Epic have been locked in a battle over the Mueller report redactions in a FOIA lawsuit before Judge Reggie Walton. The judge has already deemed many of the Department of Justice redactions in the Mueller report inappropriate and has ordered the department to release them. Well, as soon as Trump tweeted his declassification order of all things Russia, Jason Leopold filed an emergency motion with Judge Reggie Walton in this case, and he demanded for the entire unredacted Mueller report to be released, citing Trump's tweet, since the Trump administration has argued in court and won based on his tweets being official proclamations of the White House. Uh, Walton, who has called out Barr for his lack of candor and credibility in this case, issued this order on October 8th, quote, In order to ensure the expeditious resolution of the emergency motion of Jason Leopold and BuzzFeed for court order requiring defendants reprocess the Mueller report before the November 3rd election in light of the president's recent declassification waiver, 
It is hereby ordered that before, on or before October 13th at 5 p.m., the U.S. Department of Justice shall file its opposition to the plaintiff's motion. The department's opposition shall address inter alia the plaintiff's claim that the tweets by the president uh, referred to the plaintiff's motion resulted in the waiver of exemptions under the Freedom of Information Act for the report prepared by special counsel Robert Mueller regarding his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. It is further ordered that the Department of Justice shall confer with the White House in order to advise the court as to the White House's official position regarding the declassification and release to the public of information related to the Russia investigation. It is further ordered that on or before October 14th at 5 p.m., the plaintiff shall file a reply, if any, in support of their motion. It is further ordered that on October 16th at 11 a.m., the parties shall appear before the court for a motion hearing via teleconference. Signed, Honorable Reggie B. Walton, United States District Judge. I would assume that if this gambit works, all private information and sources and methods would be preserved. Uh, In fact... Those will be my beans here, that Walton grants in part and denies in part the motion, the emergency motion filed by Jason Leopold. I'm sure Department of Justice will argue the sources and methods and privacy uh, of non-charged parties. So I'm betting the ruling on this will sound something like this, quote, the department is ordered to furnish the unredacted special counsel report, excluding material reviewed and deemed classified under the exceptions to the FOIA Uh, the Freedom of Information Act for sources and methods and privacy. The court thereby grants in part and denies in part the emergency motion for the plaintiffs and grants in part and denies in part the response for summary judgment by the Department of Justice. Put some beans on it. That's what I think it'll say. We'll see. He could deny the whole thing. He might find that the the tweet doesn't actually waive FOIA exemptions, (laughs) but that'd be... It'd be funny if he did. We'll see. That's what I think will happen. Next up in Beans Come True, as we know, Elliot Broidy. What a gem. He's been charged with conspiracy to act as a foreign agent. Last Friday during our Fantasy Indictment League segment, I posited that it appeared to be a charging document and not an indictment, indicating that Broidy was going to plead guilty and cooperate with the feds. This is a lesson I learned from Joyce Vance in a previous case. As it turns out, I was right. From CNN, quote, Broidy is expected to plead guilty to the conspiracy charge later this month in a deal with the Justice Department to resolve its investigations of him, according to a person familiar with the investigation. Note investigations of him, plural. Why is this important? Because not only was Broidy the deputy finance chair of the RNC, joining a prestigious list of wonderful men, including Michael Cohen, Steve Wynn and Louis DeJoy, But he also worked on Trump's inaugural, which is in deep shit, according to multiple investigations, plural, into the oranges, the origins of the rubles funneled through it. So hang on tight for that. Next up in Beans Come True, I tweeted December 4th, 2019, quote, looks like it was Durham, the guy Barr handpicked to investigate the oranges of the Russia investigation that just told the Department of Justice Inspector General that he has no evidence that the investigation was a frame job or a setup. And in September 2019, I tweeted just a couple months earlier, quote, so Trump is running around the globe desperately trying to find anything to discredit the Mueller probe. Uh, Ukraine for the DNC hack conspiracy, Barr and Pompeo in Italy for Mifsud, and now Australia for Papadopoulos. It's clear that Barr and Durham have nothing, unquote. Well, as we know from last week, the Inspector General report shows exactly what I said it would, as sources who have seen it have reported to the Washington Post. 
And just this weekend, it was announced that there will be no report from Durham, not even an interim report like Trump wanted, about the Russia investigation prior to the election. You want to know why? And this is conjecture, but I'm right. They have nothing. They've spent gobs of taxpayer money globetrotting trying to dig up anything they could to discredit the Russia probe, and they have nothing. The only thing they've been able to come up with is an email altered by uh, an FBI lawyer named Klein Smith in the Carter Page FISA warrant, a warrant which led to no charges and which no evidence gathered was used at all in any part of the investigation. A warrant which the IG said would have been granted without the dossier anyhow, and a warrant that the inspector general concluded was not issued due to to any agency bias toward Trump. They have Nothing. And Kleinsmith, who altered the email, has pleaded guilty to doing so, though not a peep from the Flinsters about the Strzok and McCabe FBI notes that were altered by the U.S. attorney from Eastern District of Missouri, Jeff Jensen's team, that was submitted by Flynn's idiot attorneys as part of what Judge Gleason referred to in the Flynn case as, quote, a game of whack-a-mole as the Department of Justice continues to unearth utterly inconsequential administrative tidbits and then launders them through the investigation in the Eastern District of Missouri. Unquote. Womp womp, QAnon. And despite all that, President Trump has berated his own cabinet officers. He did this on Thursday for not prosecuting or implicating his political enemies, lashing out, even as he announced that he hoped to return to the campaign trail on Saturday, just nine days after he tested positive for COVID. In his first extended public comments since learning he had COVID last week, Trump went on the offensive, not only against his challenger, Biden, but the Democratic running mate, Harris, who he called a monster and a communist. He balked at participating in his debate next Thursday with Biden, if if held remotely, as the organizers decided to do out of health concerns. The president castigated his own team, declaring that Barr would go down in history as a very sad, sad situation if he did not indict Democrats like Mr. Biden and former President Barack Obama. He complained that Secretary of State Pompeo had not released Hillary Clinton's email, saying, I'm not happy about him for that reason. And he targeted Chris Ray, the FBI director. He's been disappointing. Quote, unless Barr indicts these people for crimes, the greatest political crime in the history of our country, then we're going to get little satisfaction unless I, unless I win and we'll just have to go because I won't forget it. And this is Trump referring to the investigation of his 2016 campaign. Quote, but these people should be indicted. This was the greatest political crime in the history of our country. And that includes Obama and it includes Biden. Mr. Trump has often argued that his political antagonists should be prosecuted. But in this case, he went further by indicating that he had directly pressured Barr to indict without waiting for evidence. He's got all the information he needs, said Trump. They want to get more, more, more. They keep getting more. You don't need any more. Sounds to me like his aides have been lying to him again about what Durham has, which is nothing. And you want to know how desperate the Trump campaign is for dirt? In response to this, these these comments that Trump made about Pompeo being disappointed in Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo on Friday announced he would release more of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's emails. An openly political move on behalf of Trump ahead of the November election and a year after the State Department investigation concluded there was no persuasive evidence of widespread mishandling of the classified information by Clinton or her aides. Thanks, State Department. We didn't really need you to do that as it was already cleared by the inspector general and the FBI. And a day earlier, Trump expressed displeasure that his top U.S. diplomat had not yet released the emails, as we just said in this story. He said in 2015 were personal and private. 
and asked if they would be released before the election. He said, I certainly think there will be a lot more to see before the election. Quote, we're going to get all this information out so the American people can see it. You'll remember there was classified information on a private server. Should have never been there. Hillary Clinton should never have done that. It was unacceptable behavior, Pompeo said. Gosh, I sure hope this doesn't hurt Hillary's chances at the polls. Oh, wait. She's not running. And from the Washington Post, a private security company is recruiting former U.S. military special ops personnel to guard polling sites in Minnesota on Election Day, an effort the chairman of the company has said is intended to prevent left-wing activists from disrupting the election, but that the state attorney general warned would amount to voter intimidation, violate the law. The recruiting effort is being done by Atlas Aegis, a private security company based in Tennessee that was formed last year and is run by U.S. military veterans, including people with special ops experience. The company chairman, Anthony Caudill, posted a message through Defense Industry Job Site this week calling for former Special Operations Forces staff uh, to, to apply for security positions in Minnesota, quote, security positions in Minnesota during the November election and beyond to protect election polls, local businesses and residences from looting and destruction. He said in an interview earlier this week he was planning to send a large contingent to Minnesota, but didn't specify numbers. But elections officials in Minnesota at the state level and in Minneapolis, 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 <laughs> Minneapolis, say they've never heard of this company, nor do they plan to allow armed guards at polling sites. Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon said no one can do anything other than go to and from voting in that 100 foot buffer zone. They have a 100 foot buffer around polling places. Also from the Washington Post this weekend, in recent weeks, the U.S. military has mounted an operation to temporarily disrupt what is described as the world's largest botnet, one used to also drop ransomware, which officials say is one of the top threats to the 2020 election. U.S. Cyber Command's campaign against the TrickBot botnet, an army of at least a million hijacked computers run by Russian-speaking criminals, is not expected to permanently dismantle their network. And this is according uh, to four U.S. officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity. But it is one way to distract them, at least for a while, so they can, as they seek to restore their operations. And the, this effort is part of what General Paul Nakasone, the head of Cyber Command, calls persistent engagement or the imposition of cumulative costs on an adversary by keeping them constantly engaged. So you can't really take them down, but they can, you know, distract them. And uh, that is a key feature of Cybercom's activities to help protect the election from foreign threats. TrickBot is a malware that can steal financial data and drop other malicious software into infected onto infected systems. Cybercriminals have used it to install ransomware, a particularly nasty form of malware that encrypts users' data and for which criminals then demand payment, usually in cryptocurrency, to unblock. We'll keep you posted on that. We also have another Trump tax bombshell from the New York Times. Donald Trump needed money in 2016. His self-funded presidential campaign was short on funds, and he was struggling to win over leery Republican donors. His golf courses in the hotel he would soon open in the old post office in Washington were eating away at, at cash he had left on hand. And in early 2016, Deutsche Bank, the biggest lender still doing business with him, the only lender still doing business with him, unexpectedly turned down his request for a loan. The funds, Mr. Trump had told his bankers, would help shore up his Turnberry golf course in Scotland. But some bankers feared the money would instead be diverted to his campaign. That January, Mr. Trump took a, sold a lot of stock, too, um, $11.1 million worth. Uh, he sold another $11.8 million in February and $7.5 million in March. And in April, $8.1 million more. Uh, and the president's 
Long hidden tax records obtained by the New York Times also reveal how he engineered a sudden cash windfall of more than $21 million in what experts describe as highly unusual one-off payments from the Las Vegas hotel he owns with his friend, the casino mogul Phil Ruffin. The tax records, by their nature, do not specify where that money came from, the $21 million. Uh, but they do show how the cash flowed in a chain of transactions to several Trump-controlled companies and then directly to Trump himself. Experts in tax and campaign finance law consulted the Times, uh, and they said that while more information was needed to assess the legitimacy of the payments, they could be legally problematic. Quote, why all of a sudden does this company have more than $20 million in fees that have never been there before? That's Daniel Shaviro saying that, a professor of taxation at New York University School of Law. Quote, and all of this money is going to a man who just happens to be running for president and might not have a lot of cash on hand? So unless the payments were for actual business expenses, he said, claiming a tax deduction for them would be illegal. If they were not legitimate and were also used to fund the, the campaign, they could be considered illegal campaign contributions. <gasps> no. It's of note that Deutsche Bank, again, would not lend him any money in 2016, knowing he was under scrutiny for ties with Russia, and knowing most of the money likely funding Trump's loans came from multiple small banks in Russia with Kremlin ties. We don't have the smoking gun on that yet, but it's rather obvious, as if Comey says, if you have eyes and ears. And ABC has confirmed that the attendees at Trump's Evita balcony speech this weekend were indeed paid to be there. From ABC News, quote, some guests for Saturday's White House event on the South Lawn, which will be President Trump's first uh, since testing positive for COVID, had their travel and lodging paid for by controversial conservative activist Candace Owens' group Blexit, according to emails obtained by ABC News. Supporters who were also scheduled to attend, who were also scheduled to attend a separate Blexit event earlier in that day, were invited to attend a huge outdoor rallies. But 2,000 people, three, 300 came. They were uh, invited to this rally and asked to fill out a form that notified them that Blexit, a campaign urging black Americans to leave the Democratic Party, would be covering their travel costs. Hmm. Seems illegal. And Postmaster General Louis DeJoy who has faced intense scrutiny from Democrats over the changes he's made to the post office, apparently donated more than $685,000 to the host committee that worked to stage the Republican National Convention. The new filings Friday at the Federal Election Commission from, from the Charlotte Host Committee show four donations from DeJoy between late December 2018 and late March 2020, totaling $685,230. DeJoy and the Trump campaign did not respond when asked for comment. And before we get out of here, a quick note to Chuck Schumer, trying to get our hopes up. Well, I don't know if he's trying to get our hopes up, but he's going through the motions, and rightfully so, going through the motions. He should do this by saying the Dems will not show up to the Senate Judiciary to advance Amy Coney Barrett to the full Senate for consideration. This has to go through the Senate Judiciary first. They have to put her up as a nominee, then it goes to the full Senate. And the Senate, the Senate Judiciary needs a quorum, which by the rules say nine members. OK, so there's 12 Republicans and 10 Democrats. So you need nine members Two have to be from the minority party. However, that rule has been gaveled through before by Lindsey Graham. Uh, and in fact, uh, DiFi wrote him a letter back in 2019 asking him, don't do that. And so that's what will happen. The Dems won't show up and they, as they should not. It's dangerous, first of all, because if Tillis and Lee show up, then, then, you know, they have COVID. Best to stay home anyway or risk your health. And who knows how many other Republicans on that committee have it. 
having probably met secretly with Trump before the Comey hearing, right around the time of the Amy Coney Barrett uh, Rose Garden Red Wedding. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, they can, you know, if if they do ignore that that rule, that Senate rule, that, that Judiciary Committee rule, which they've ignored in the past, which Lindsay's ignored in the past, then, yes, the Dems can go to the parliamentarian and demand order, and then the parliamentarian can say, okay, you can't do that. And then Mitch can show up and, and overrule with a simple majority, which he would do. All this can create a couple of days' worth of um, delay. Uh, but but more importantly, it's, it's, it's definitely important to go through the motions, especially if you're going to try to impeach Amy Coney Barrett to show that you've done due diligence. And to show the public that you're doing everything that you can to avoid this nomination from being jammed through since we've already started voting. Anyway, we'll be right back with the Democratic candidate for Michigan's 6th District for the U.S. House of Representatives, John Hoadley, for our Flip It Blue segment. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Have you ever thought about your cellular health? No? Well, me neither. Why would we? Because cells are the foundation of our health, and they make us who we are, that's why. And one of the most important building blocks of our cells is called NAD, which is vital for things like sleeping, breathing, eating, drinking, you know, the, some of the most important stuff we do that we don't necessarily think about either. The bad news is, as we age, our bodies don't make NAD like they used to. But here's the good news. There's a way to boost your NAD levels, thanks to True Niogen. True Niogen helps counteract the effects of time on your body by promoting cellular repair. It also helps with healthy aging by supporting cellular function and metabolism to maintain overall health and well-being. True Niogen can also help increase your cellular energy. It replenishes the decline in NAD, doing to stressors such as lack of sleep and overeating, so you can keep up with your active lifestyle. Taking True Niogen also helps with cellular defense in the face of stresses such as alcohol consumption or immune stress, which is a form of cellular stress. True Niogen has caught the attention of the scientific community with its remarkable ability to boost NAD, and they have over 10 clinical studies to prove it. Give your cells a boost with True Niogen. Right now, new customers can save $20 on a three-month supply by going to trueniogen.com slash dailybeans. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N dot com slash dailybeans to save $20 on a three-month supply. trueniogen.com slash dailybeans. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm And joining me today for the Flip It Blue segment, he is running as the Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress in Michigan's 6th District against opponent Republican Fred Upton. Please welcome John Hoadley to the show. John, thanks for talking to me today. Well, thanks, everybody, for uh, being here on the podcast. Love it. And can't wait for your help to flip it blue. Yeah, we definitely need to, because this is what stands out to me the most. Fred Upton has held this seat since I was 12, since 1987. (laughs) And uh, that is... Tell me about your district. How has he held this seat for so long? What are some of the characteristics of Michigan 6th? Well, you know, I laugh. Uh, we just recently posted a photo of me um, when I was three, because that's how old I was when Fred Upton uh, first won this district. 
I mean, it's Michigan District 6 is a district that is in southwest Michigan. It's one of the least gerrymandered districts in the state because they couldn't move Lake Michigan or Indiana when they were gerrymandering the rest of the map. <laughs> they, they probably tried. <laughs> they, I'm sure. I'm sure there was a call made. But they, you know, it's, it's part of the state where um, we have an interesting mix. So a couple of things. Um, just first, politically, a lot of people think that this place is more red than it is. It's a district that voted for Obama, barely voted for Mitt Romney, and then Trump won the district, but with only 51% of the vote. We, it's an R plus four district, and it's got a real interesting mix of sort of urban, suburban, and rural parts of the district. This is a place where we have Fortune 500 companies. We have Western Michigan University, Kalamazoo College, and some great community colleges. Uh, we also grow a ton of potatoes and blueberries, and we have agricultural and rural manufacturing. So it's got a little bit of everything. But overall, it's a district that has been trending towards the Democrats. Um, and with a little bit of a push, this is the year that we can finally flip it blue. Yeah, because I'm, I'm hearing turnout is going to be and is, you know, with with registrations is really big in Michigan right now. Well, one thing that happened after the 2018 elections where um, voters approved a citizen-led um, constitutional amendment that secured everybody a right to vote. We can all vote by mail in our state constitution now. We have same-day voter registration, and we have a secretary of state, Jocelyn Benson, who's done an incredible job protecting the franchise. And so we're seeing a surge of participation. I checked the numbers uh, about, a, about a week ago, and 183,000 people in my district had ballots in their hands. And for perspective, you know, this is a district where uh, 330,000 people would, nor would normally vote. So we're seeing huge numbers. And by the way, of those 180,000 some people, about one out of six of them were first time voters, which means people are raising their hand to participate. And it's not just young people, but when you look at the demographics, it is every one of those groups who are fed up with the direction of the Republican Party. Uh, they, need, they know that we're in this, uh, this moment where their kids are doing virtual school. Kindergartners are trying to learn on the computer because of the failure of leadership around COVID-19 that came out of the Trump administration that was enabled by people like Mr. Upton along the way. And uh, they're voting for change. Mm. Yeah. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about how your platform dovetails with the new voter and and all of the existing Democrats as well and independents and Republicans as too, because you, top line here is that I think I've, I've spoken to dozens of uh, candidates and talked in uh, like all sorts of districts around the country for, for the U.S. House of Representatives. And healthcare seems to be the number one issue right now. And not just about COVID, but just, you know, having access to, to you know, timely access to quality healthcare in general, even in the before times. It, it's been it's been tough. And, and right now, people like Upton, your opponent, supporting the Trump administration, are arguing in the Supreme Court to 
take people's insurance away, to gut the Affordable Care Act. And then we have COVID. We've got almost 8 million people in this country who have had a case of it. And that can give you a pre-existing condition. We don't know the long-term effects yet. And then, as you said, we're all you know, doing our best to socially distance, stay home, stay home from school, learn, learn remotely. And all of these things tie together. But can you tell us about your health care platform and what you're pushing for? Because I think this, this is very important right now. Well, at, at its very simplest terms, uh, I'm for more health care and Fred Upton votes to take health care away. And, you know, in healthcare got really personal for me a few years ago when my partner, Chris, um, came into some medical trouble. You know, I came home from, a, from being in the legislature and I found Chris on the floor. Uh, he'd been vomiting for 18 hours. He was barely able to move. And we had a fight about whether we were going to call an ambulance because ambulances are expensive. I won that fight and we got him to the hospital. Uh, And after hours of tests and treatment, they stabilized him. uh, And he said, doc, I still see double. And the doctor said, that's not what you came in for. So we're discharging you, which meant we had to go back to his primary care doctor the next day who at the very beginning of the exam almost immediately sent us back to the emergency room. And that led to more tests, MRIs with contrast, MRIs without lab tests, until finally the doctor walked in and said to Chris, I think you have multiple sclerosis. And for anybody who's been in that situation where the questions feel so big and you as a caregiver feel so small, you know exactly what I was going through. And then that started a fight where we had to fight with insurance companies to make sure he got the care he needed. We fought, had a fight to get him into the right uh, healthcare access and find a treatment program. And now we're also like every one of those other families who at the start of every year, we hope that the prescription medications that keep him healthy are still going to be covered by his employer and his insurance. Right. And it's just, this isn't right. And so, you know, I'm someone who thinks that we need to uh, that we need to expand healthcare. You know, we need to be making sure that we are. Uh, I've been supportive of, of ideas like Medicare for all, you know, but I'm an all of the above person when it comes to healthcare. I'm going to vote for whatever we can do today to make healthcare better tomorrow, because there's too many people like Chris who have a pre-existing condition, which Fred Upton voted to gut coverage for people with pre-existing condition 12 times. And there's too many people who lost their health insurance during a global health pandemic through no fault of their own. And Mr. Upton doesn't think that they should have health insurance in that regard. And he's voted to limit access to health care over 60 times. And people like Chris and so many other people, whether it's are dealing with prescription drug costs, whether it's insulin or the medication for MS, or someone talked about their um, telophilia uh, medication that was going to cost $49,000 a month if they didn't have insurance. And so, you know, Fred Upton voted against lowering prescription drug prices. So I'm just someone that says, we need to change this. And I'm done with playing games with people's lives. Let's get this fixed. Yeah. And that fight alone, uh, you know, a lot of people give up. And it, it reminds me of, uh, of something else here you have in your platform, which is providing for our veterans. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a veteran, and it seems like under this administration, the culture of the VA is a culture of no. And 
it's you have to fight really hard to get the care that you need. And that's very difficult for a lot of our veterans who suffer from PTSD. For example, um, that fight is something that a lot of people just aren't able to take on. And so t- tell a little bit, talk a little bit about how you want to help provide for, for our veterans. Well, uh, AG, first, thank you for your service. I'm so glad um, and I'm so appreciative. You know, my, my grandfather was a World War II vet. Um, I've got veterans in my family. And so uh, I just am full of respect for folks that have been able to help protect and serve. Um, but this is an area that we need to fix. And I want to be really clear. Michigan, when it comes to veteran care, keeps coming up at the bottom of all those lists, right? Like we're always right near the bottom. And I don't know, after 34 years in Congress, why hasn't Fred Upton be able to actually deliver for our veterans to get them the care that they need? And, you know, for me, um, this is an area that I think that we can make some real improvement on. And, you know, I, I, talk, I was just talking with some veterans who are upset because, you know, the TRICARE costs are going up and, uh, and you know, they're waiting too long to get the care that they need. So on my website, johnhodley.com, we have a number of issues pages. But if you go to the section that's talking about veterans, I want to make sure that um, we can do things to actually uh, help veterans get additional uh, skills training that uh, when they're coming out of the service. I, I, as a state legislator, have voted to remove barriers and recognize more of the service, uh, the credentials that are earned in the service that could then be applied to Michigan licensing. Let's expand that nationwide so we can cut red tape and help veterans apply those services, uh, apply their skills to the job market. Um, I've supported making sure that we, um, that we're actually taking our veterans seriously. And that means, uh, you know, supporting their healthcare so we can reduce wait, wait times. And finally, you know, in Michigan, we have, um, we have veterans homes. And, you know, I've been proud to work with Senator Brinks and other state legislators as we fought to make sure that our veterans got the care that they needed. Sometimes they were being drastically undercared for. Uh, I want to crack down on those types of abuses across the country and make sure that uh, we're actually honoring our commitment to our veterans. Mm. Yeah. And and like you said uh, here on your platform, you, you uh, oppose attempts to privatize the Department of Veterans Affairs and TRICARE, DOD, MHS, all of those programs right mm-hmm. now. I know Esper and Trump have, have removed $2.2 billion out of uh, TRICARE uh, to try to send everyone out to private insurance, private health insurance. And I know that the VA has also, under Trump, expanded sending veterans out for substandard care with longer wait times that costs the taxpayers three times as much money as it does within the VA. And so, you know, and I love your idea of of when veterans get out of the service, you know, let's provide them with free education to become optometrists, physical therapists, and ortho, the top three things needed within the Department of Veterans Affairs. And, you know, just and have have a, a working program, a work program like that. I think that that would be absolutely outstanding. And then also legalizing or decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana, uh, because as absolutely. as a veteran, I'm not even allowed to talk to my doctor at the VA about medical marijuana. So and we know that. I mean, that's absurd. And we know that this is something that could provide immediately relief for so many veterans. And I just want to go back to one other point you said, you know, We've watched as these privatization attempts are happening now. And again, 
the guy I'm running against has, has not fought against them. But I, this, this sort of privatization is insidious and it's happening not only on, uh, uh, within veteran affairs, but also, you know, in social attempts in social security and so many other parts of our, uh, our healthcare system. And so this is an area that I think we're seeing a major shift in the country. You know, I'm proud to be supported by groups like Social Security Works PAC because uh, I'm always going to be fighting efforts that are going to be, uh, I'm going to be fighting efforts to privatize Medicare, to privatize Social Security, to privatize the VA. And so, um, you know, this is just something, this is a, yet another example where putting a for-profit motive uh, in these particular instances, particularly around healthcare, uh, just has not been good for our veterans, our seniors, and so many other Americans. Yeah, and as a as a employee of the Department of Veterans Affairs, <clears throat> before I was removed after my podcast was investigated, but story for another time, uh, they started giving us the payroll tax holiday, defunding Social Security. So I got more money in my paycheck, which I will then have to pay back in taxes. And meanwhile, we have nothing going into our Social Security to make it solvent. Uh, and and it's this is all we could go on forever. But I wanted to talk a little <laughs> bit about. Um, some of, cause you're, you know, you've got some, uh, urban, suburban, and then rural areas. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, your rural investment in, in your, in the sixth district there, expansion of broadband and, uh, the environment, because we have to preserve, I mean, Michigan is so beautiful and we have to preserve these areas. Absolutely. And, you know, come, um, I, I was born originally in South Dakota. And so I, you're, I'm never going to be afraid of a, of a cornfield. But the the thing I laugh about is that we have folks who uh, who are saying that they're advocating for our rural communities, but they have failed to deliver. You know, we figured out 100 years ago how to electrify the prairie. But why is it taking us decades to figure out how to make sure high-speed Internet gets to every single one of our homes? You know, if we want our small communities to thrive, they have to stay connected. We, there's so much work that we can be doing from anywhere. And I'll put our quality of life uh, in our small towns, you know, up against uh, any other place in the world, right? We have some of the best places to live and raise a family, but that assumes that you can connect to the internet, that you can do your virtual work, that you can uh, get on that Zoom call without worried about it being dropped. And in a world where that matters even more now because of the digital divide that exists on education um, and, you know, in other economic areas. We have to double down. But unfortunately, so many folks are in the pocket of their biggest corporate PAC givers, in, particularly in telecom, where they have fought efforts. And I know this as a state legislator, where we've tried to put in efforts that would actually open up competition and innovation in some of our smaller rural markets. And they keep saying no. They actually keep saying, give us money and we'll go do it. And then they drag their feet. And a lot of times they don't. So that's step one. Step two is making sure that we're investing in our schools because people don't move places that they don't have high quality schools for their kids. And if we want our rural communities to be competitive, they have to have great public schools um, so folks can raise a family in our small towns, in our rural areas. You know, we still have to deal a lot um, with uh, water quality issues, regardless of where you are in the state. And one thing that's particularly dangerous in my district is people know Michigan is still in a water crisis. 
there it is still not safe to drink the water in every home in Flint. And on top of that, in my district, we are dealing with PFAS contamination. It's a forever chemical that leaches into the water and for years uh, went underregulated because people like Mr. Upton weren't ready to take on the corporate polluters and their toxic contamination. But as a result, families who depend on well water have had to find different places to go because so many of their wells have been contaminated with PFAS. You know, there's still so many of our rural communities that haven't seen significant green infrastructure investment. And as a result, they're still lead in the pipes and we haven't replaced them. So these are the kind of things that matter, particularly in our rural communities, because we are we could be in a spot where we could see a rural um, a rural boom, right? And and people looking for a smaller, more connected way of life in some different parts. And I say that with no disrespect um, coming to any of my urban centers either. I'm just saying that the types of things that could help our smaller communities thrive are being told no, because the decision makers are more focused on the corporate PAC folks than they are on putting people in the communities at the center of decisions. Yeah. And and I have to say that it's it's people like your opponent, John Upton, it's candidates like that who refuse to take on big pharma and big healthcare and polluters, uh, toxic polluters, because of money and politics. And so I, I about a minute or two left, I wanted to talk about H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voters' Rights Act, which I hope is what they'll call it. But all the all of your stuff about ending Citizens United, the legislator to lobbyist pipeline that needs to be banned, uh, gerrymandering, the right to vote, same day voter registration, opt opt out voter registration where everyone's automatically voted, and this seems like everything that's kind of covered in HR one that you know sat on Mitch McConnell, the Grim Reaper's desk for since gosh this whole entire mm-hmm. Congress has been in session. And uh, I, I would like you to just talk a little bit about that, about, you know, H.R. 1 and the Voting Rights Act. Sure. Uh, this isn't just things that I'm going to talk the talk on. It's where I've walked the walk. As a state legislator, I've offered and I introduced constitutional amendments that, that ended gerrymandering, that would have uh, had the Voter Bill of Rights and improved the franchise. Obviously, they all went to uh, a similar uh, graveyard in the Michigan legislature, which is controlled by Republicans. But I was so glad to see voters take very similar measures to the ballot in 2018 and pass them overwhelmingly. Because it turns out that when you get outside of the D.C. bubble or the biggest lobbyists, they voters want fair districts. They want to be able to pick their politicians, not politicians picking the voters. And uh, when it comes to uh, voting rights, people overwhelmingly think if you have a legal right to vote, you should be able to cast your ballot without interference or gain. So I'm ready to, to cast those votes in Congress. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, Mr. Upton did not. But look, I would say this, the, what we need is people who have the courage to stand up and do what's right. And you know what I'll say is that that might have been Mr. Upton 20 years ago, but in the face of right now the most homophobic attacks in the country, and in, Mr. Upton has been silent. You know, in an effort, when given the chance to stand up and when do what's right, even on some of the simple things, and he doesn't, how will he ever have the courage to do the hard things? But I need people's help. I'll definitely need people's help because this is a competitive district. They're dumping in a ton of that dark money, which is why we should also end dark money. Uh, But they're they're dumping in a ton of dark money in this race. 
uh, to lie about my record and my character because they're trying to distract voters from everything but the most important issues, healthcare, the environment, and education. And, um, you know, I know that our healthcare message is moving the needle, and we just have to make sure we stay in front of voters. And so if people can go to johnhoodley.com, tell us if you want to volunteer, if you want to make a donation, all of it makes an impact on a race that is incredibly winnable. Oh, and as a bonus, the voters that we turn out are going to help get Senator Gary Peters reelected to a must-win U.S. Senate seat, get Biden-Harris over the finish line in a, in a state we have to have our electoral votes in because, uh, y'all, we messed that up four years ago. And we could even be the tiebreaker decision if we have to cast a vote in Congress by state delegation. Hmm. Yeah, and everybody, <laughs> that's a big deal. So go. it's John Hudley, J-O-N-H-O-A-D-L-E-Y. Is that right? Yep. yep. JohnHodley.com. Head there and uh, you can figure out how to volunteer, write postcards, text bank, phone bank, and of course, contribute. So do that. And everyone, uh, it's it's so important. This is is in, this is such a flippable seat. You, you need to have that. We can do it, you know, fired up, ready to go. Make it happen. So I'm really excited about this. <laughs> I'm going to be watching Michigan 6 really closely. I appreciate you coming on today, um, Democratic candidate John Hoadley for Michigan 6th District. Let's let's get Fred Upton out of there. Thank you so much. Let's flip it blue. All right, everybody. We'll be right back with the interview. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. This episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that is known for its delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is real organic, fair trade, single origin Arabic coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mus- mushroom for immune support. I've been starting my day recently with Four Sigmatic's ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane instead of regular coffee, and it helps me focus. I love it. I can get shit done. It is amazing. I absolutely feel an uptick in my productivity every time I drink it. It helps me focus like nothing else. Mushroom coffee is also easy on my gut, and it doesn't leave me with that awful jittery feeling or midday crash. All four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Plus, every single batch is third-party lab-tested to ensure its purity and safety, so you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushroom possible. Now, you're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? I can guarantee it tastes just like the coffee that you love. It brews dark and nutty and tastes incredible. Over 20,000 five-star reviews. And best of all, Four Sigmatic backs their products with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee, but this is just for Daily Beans listeners. You can get up to 40% off plus free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash dailybeans. This offer is only for the Daily Beans listeners, and it's not available on their regular website. You'll save up to 40% and get free shipping. So right now, go to Four Sigmatic. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash Daily Beans and fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the interview. And I'm really excited. Joining me today, top whistleblower expert attorney in the universe, right? Just absolutely incredible uh, work that he's done with whistleblowers, uh, including whistleblowers in the O.J. Simpson murder case, World Trade Center bombing, Oklahoma City bombing, Linda Tripp, Privacy Act case, uh, Bradley Birkenfeld, uh, UBS AG tax evasion case, just all kinds of whistleblower cases. And he's going to talk to us today about uh, whistleblowers and what's been going on in the Trump administration and myself as well. He's also a partner at Cone Cone and Cola Pinto. Please welcome Stephen Cone. Attorney, how are you, Stephen? Great. And thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and 
great to be here. This is it's wonderful to speak to you because last week, uh, or maybe very recently, I spoke with Jane over at the Whistleblower uh, News Network. And uh, my story is going to be coming out at the whistleblowersblog.org based on that interview. And that's today, Monday, uh, in her Whistleblower of the Week uh, story in her uh, segment there. And so I'm I'm excited to speak to you. She referred me to you uh, based on the discussions that we had about my case with the government and being chased out, uh, uh, likely illegally. But I also wanted to talk to you, uh, before we get into that, a little bit about what's been going on in the Trump administration with regards to whistleblowers, because there has been a serious chilling effect and impact on the way that whistleblowers have been treated by this administration going back very far very far, but most significantly in the Ukraine uh, case with the impeachment and the whistleblower there. They were trying to call out and identify the whistleblower in that case. And uh, just recently, Dr. Bright has resigned as a whistleblower um, from his position about the coronavirus because he opposed the uh, the hydroxychloroquine that had not been approved by the FDA and all sorts of all sorts of things. So we've got a lot of whistleblowers in this administration, and they're they're just being chilled. And I was wondering what you thought about a lot of that. Well, the thing about whistleblowers is, if the whistleblower's correct, the manager or the owner, the business, the corporation, the government official, they have to destroy the whistleblower because it's kind of like a no end game. Mm. If the whistleblower is right, then they either should be removed from office or go to jail or they're admitting to malfeasance. So that's why these whistleblower cases become so intense. It's unlike other types of legal cases where you may settle, win or lose. But if the whistleblower is right, for example, the Ukraine whistleblower or Dr. Bright, if there was gross negligence in COVID-19, if there was improper communications concerning Russia or Ukraine, that's a big deal. So you see time and time again, this intensity of retaliation and the problem, which, is all, which comes up in case after case, is it's usually one whistleblower who's not associated with some big movement or have some financial backing behind them against a powerful institution, be it a corporation or a government agency. Mm-hmm. And government agencies can be the worst because if it's a corporation, Sometimes they're afraid that the whistleblower may trigger the government to investigate them. But if you're the government, where are you at? <laughs> there we are. Yeah. And um, I personally was not um, an official whistleblower. Uh, I, I did not follow the steps um, uh, that are involved in becoming an official whistleblower under the Whistleblower Protection Act. And there's 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 a lot of differences there. Like we've got some whistleblowers like Reality Winner and, you know, et cetera, who, who either leaked to the press um, or, you know, didn't go through the channels to, to have the, I guess, designation of whistleblower. And I'm, I'm one of those people. They basically told me after investigating my podcast that I – I needed to either move to D.C. or be fired, and I chose to be fired. Uh, And then some other retaliatory things happened. I filed an EEO complaint. We went through the investigative process. 
uh, and I'm looking for a, I can't remember what it's called, not a summary judgment, but some, something, a judgment from a judge within the Department of Veterans Affairs to, to see if I can get a settlement here. That's because uh, if it's more than $5,000, uh, it has to go now because of new rules and regulations and policies. It has to go now up to the undersecretary level to get those kinds of settlements approved. So um, we're working on that. So I'm not in a full-blown lawsuit for, for wrongful termination at this point. Uh, we're going the uh, the less expensive route to, you know, to see if we can just get a settlement uh, here. But uh, I was awarded my severance. Um, so there's at least that. But I, can you talk a little bit about, because our, our whistleblower's heroes, who goes through the official channels of being a whistleblower, like Dr. Bright, for example, or like the Ukraine whistleblower who went through the official channels, and somebody who just accepts their fate and then comes back and, and you know, files an EEO, an EEO complaint or something uh, like that. There's just so much policy. Well, great questions. Uh, first off, Whistleblower doesn't have to follow anything. The, these procedures don't make you a whistleblower. What makes you a whistleblower is if you reveal corruption, if you reveal waste and, and mismanagement, health and safety issues. That's what makes you a whistleblower. The secondary question is whether you can be protected under law for your disclosures. And that's where the federal employees have a lot of problems because they have the worst whistleblower law, by the way, in the United States. If you look at each segment of the economy, a federal employee has the worst. So I'll put it this way, a, a, uh, a truck driver who's concerned about uh, being tired behind the wheel can get to a jury trial, significant damages, independent investigations, but someone who works for the federal highway transportation, who's concerned about bridges that may collapse that could cause thousands of people to die, they have not very few rights. In fact, they have to go before a board that's presidentially appointed that always has a majority of the people from the president in power. So in other words, the Trump administration will always control the makeup of that board, or if a new president gets in, that president will. But guess what? All presidents have an interest in keeping scandals under the rug. So federal employees have no right to get to a jury trial. They have no right to get to independent judges. So what makes a federal employee a whistleblower if they have the courage and the, to stand up and blow the whistle? And then it's up to lawyers like myself to try to pick up the pieces. However, therefore, I always have the biggest piece of advice. Essentially, look before you leap. Most people just blow the whistle. They make the disclosure. They stand up for freedom of speech. They think they have rights. They think if they do the right thing, the law will be prote protective. But guess what? That's, that's not the way it works, as you've learned. So we strongly recommend before you blow the whistle, you kind of have to get the lawyer first to, to tell you how to do it. The things you're talking about, which box you can go in, what statements you have to make if you want to be protected under law. Mm -hmm. I just want to add something else while I'm here. I just have to say this. Attorney General Barr <laughs> is the most anti whistleblower attorney general in history. 
in my view. Mm. When he worked in the Justice Department under President Bush, he came up with a theory of government that you're seeing play out today. And he challenged the constitutionality of the False Claims Act, which was the, is the most effective whistleblower law. And he actually said that special interests have a constitutional right to lobby the government to escape the enforcement of law and empowering whistleblowers to independently challenge that was, an, was unconstitutional. <laughs> so I just wanna just see, you understand what he's saying. He's saying that powerful entities can escape all accountability through using their influence. And if the American, if Congress decides to pass a law to empower the people to stop that type of corrupt influence, that law is unconstitutional. Luckily, he lost, but that is his mindset. His mindset is radically anti-whistleblower. So you combine that with a president that may have a lot to hide <laughs> and an attorney general who has total contempt for whistleblowing on a bizarre legal theories that Scalia wrote the Supreme Court decision completely refuting Barr's analysis. So when Scalia is finding your analysis on whistleblowing to be completely off the wall, this guy's got issues. Yeah, you're too shitty for Scalia. Uh, that's that's a problem. What, what can we do? So so you're you're you have faced this, and this is what federal employees across the board are facing. They're facing a government that is under the constitution, under the first amendment, must back you up, but they're busy just throwing the knives in your back. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen what's happened specifically to my agency's uh, Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection at the VA, uh, scathing inspector general report that came out last October that they are not only ignoring whistleblowers, but retaliating against them to protect uh, this administration's appointees. And, um, you know, in my specific case, the question becomes, my, you know, my podcast, was that me blowing the whistle? Was my podcast the whistle that I blew? And was the investigation into it proper or improper? Uh, I, the only attorney I hired, I didn't hire an attorney to, to uh, advise me on blowing the whistle. I, I hired an attorney to advise me on how to not violate the Hatch Act. And uh, so, you know, I made sure that I didn't use my um, my title and agency uh, to discuss my opposition to uh, a current candidate for political office, because as we know, Trump filed paperwork to run for office in 2020. Uh, in 2020, he filed it on Inauguration Day in 2017 so that he would always be a candidate for office uh, for that benefits him financially and illegally, you know. Uh, but, you know, I was doing that. And I didn't even use my name, which I could have done. I could have used my name. You know, I do have First Amendment rights, but I was trying to just not even toe the line, stay so far away from the line of violating the Hatch Act. 
um, because you know it came down through our email that that uh, there was a revision to the to the Hatch Act to add Twitter to it and Facebook to it, and specifically that we couldn't speak poorly or adversely against Trump himself, uh, which is superfluous. Because he was a candidate for office, and you can't oppose a, fa- a candidate for political office, but he had to have his name in there. Well, I'll just say so you know is uh, I would recommend that as you move forward on your case, you look up the case that I litigated, Sanjor v. EPA, and it's going to be quoted in the article that's going to be published about your case on Whistleblower News Network today by Jane Turner, because Jane talked to me about your case. And the, I'll tell you what the Sandjur case holds. The Sandjur case says that a federal employee in outside employment, including speaking, writing, and teaching, so even if you're getting paid, but you don't have to be paid, has First Amendment rights to criticize the United States government and all people therein, period. Now, the Hatch Act puts limitations on your using government property or, I, or without a disclaimer, you know, making it appear as if you're speaking on behalf of the government. But your rights as a citizen, you did not give them up when you took federal employment. And the Sanjur case, which is good law, still followed, says that. It's interesting because the where they asked me when they investigated my podcast specifically if I was earning any money, who was paying me, what my salary was, and and all that. Well, well, point of fact, you're allowed to. Now there might be some disclosure rule, but in point of fact, you're allowed to. That's what the Sandra case said. The Sandra case then went further, and it said, through if they try to block you from getting reasonable compensation for your speech, it's completely unconstitutional because that's a limit. It went further and said that if the attack on you is viewpoint-based, meaning you're for someone or against somebody, and that's why they're going after you, it is completely, totally unconstitutional and illegal. So if they decided to go after you because of the opinions you were saying, I believe that is 100% unconstitutional. Then the only question then becomes is how do you litigate that? How can you defend yourself? Now, the Sandra case was very interesting because we knew all this. We knew that if you get caught up in the Merit Systems Board and all this nonsense that they've set up to mess with federal employees, you'll, it's endless. However, so we did what something known as pre. We filed our lawsuit in federal court before they took action. We claimed chilling effect uh, because we said that if you go after this person for their speech, it will have a chilling effect. We got a nationwide injunction. Now they've already terminated you, so now you have to use the merit systems process if you were to go for this. But I would recommend that there's other cases out there. They're kind of bizarre. But what they say, if you're a federal employee and you suffer an adverse action, right? What they say is you have First Amendment rights and you have to present those First Amendment rights to the Office of Special Counsel and then maybe up to the Merit Systems Board 
And even though the Merit Systems Board doesn't have jurisdiction over First Amendment, you must present your case to them and then appeal it to the United States Courts of Appeal, Federal Circuit, or if you're in, uh, what state are you in? Well, I live in San Diego, but I worked out of but I worked out of the office in D.C. Uh, you could go to the Ninth Circuit, which I'd recommend if that's where you're living. And uh, and then you can present your First Amendment retaliation case to a real court, which is the, at this point, the Court of Appeals. Mm. And, and and that's and they can give relief. It's it's bizarre the way they make you do it. It's completely disingenuous. But at the bottom line, you have First Amendment rights as a citizen. You did not give them up by working for the government and you can pursue those rights. Okay, it may cost a lot of money and take a lot of time, but I, you know, you can. And maybe the American Civil Liberties Union or some group that should be standing behind you will stand behind you and, and fight for you. Mm. Yeah, the problem is, is that they didn't actually remove me for cause for because of uh, the investigation of the podcast. What ended up happening was uh, while I was waiting to be fired because I couldn't move to D.C. for my job, uh, I asked for um, telework and they denied that uh, in in it was that was pretty retaliatory. And then because I asked for telework, you know, because of my PTS, I, I couldn't go into the office and I wasn't going to travel to D.C., commute to D.C. every morning to be in the office there because that's where my job had moved to. So just to even say that, look, it's salt water or fresh. If they took retaliatory action, they don't have to mm -hmm. fire you. If they changed the terms and conditions of your employment in retaliation for speech, well, they say it was because it was a it was a, a restructuring that they were moving my position. Oh, to, yeah. To DC. They always do. Get out the fiddles. Mm -hmm. I say, in other words, I say what they did to you from what I can gather and what I gather from Jane was completely unconstitutional and could be fought. The problem that all whistleblowers face, it's attorney's fees, it's time, it's stress. And then you have to face judges that may be appointed by Trump or whomever. It's an up word battle. So we, just so you know, there's new, what I call the supersonic whistleblower laws, which I love, the ones that we use today, uh, that cover the private sector. And they let you blow the whistle anonymously, confidentially, and the, they work. They actually keep your confidences and they permit you to get monetary rewards if you're right. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to suffer to get damages. If the allegations you're raising are correct and are proven, you can get compensation for the risk of being a whistleblower and stepping forward, and they let you go anonymously and confidentially. So oh. these are the newer laws. Unfortunately, they don't apply to federal employees. <laughs> of course not. But uh, I'll tell you what, if the, if the VA uh, rejects my uh, claim um, of, of retaliation and, and wrongful termination, uh, I'll let you know, <laughs> because then if I can apply, if I can apply for relief from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, I, I may go that way. It just depends on how much it costs. You have me. to just put your record and get up there. If it's First Amendment, that's where you it, it's kind of bizarre. Like you usually go to federal court, but the, the U.S. Supreme Court in its imminent wisdom said, you got to jump the hoops 
present it to an appeals court. It's like totally crazy. I also say, you, as you know, the VA has the worst reputation of all federal agencies for retaliation. Mm-hmm. The work, more cases, I've done VA cases, they have been heartbreaking mm-hmm. and how awful and the way they treat the veterans and it doesn't matter, they can say whatever they want, lip service. I, I've seen it with my VA whistleblowers and it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Especially since almost half of, of the employees of the Department of Veterans Affairs are veterans. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Stephen. I've had a wonderful time chatting with you today. Everybody, check out uh, Whistleblower News Network. You can Google that or go to Whistleblower's blog, whistleblowers, plural, blog, dot org. Um, see my story there for more details. And uh, we'll be in touch as this as this goes on, I have a feeling. I appreciate you talking to me today. Great respect for what you've done, and thank you so much. You take care. All right. You too. Have a good rest of your weekend. Everybody stick around right after this. We'll have the good news. Hey, everybody. It's AG. This portion of Daily Beans is brought to you by Plush Care. We all know that you shouldn't put off seeing a doctor, especially when you're not feeling well. And I know that with everything going on, it can be difficult to put your health first. Well, that's why I use Plush Care. Plush Care provides primary and urgent health care through virtual appointments. Scheduling an appointment, even for the same day, is super easy. You just pick a slot that works for me, a couple clicks, and boom, I'm booked online. So I don't waste time on hold on the phone or sitting in a crowded waiting room, which is unsafe right now. And with my Plush Care membership, I see my doctor from the comfort of my own home, virtually, even with my PJs on. I wear my onesies. And with Plush Care, I can get diagnosed, treated, and even have a prescription sent to my local pharmacy if I need it, all within minutes. And if I have any questions before or after my visit, I can send unlimited messages to my care team anytime. Plus, Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers, and it's available in all 50 states. And with how difficult things are, if you're feeling anxious, depressed, or stressed about what's going on in the world, Plush Care doctors are here to help. They can discuss treatment options and provide prescriptions as needed. I can tell you personally, my Plush Care experience has been a breeze. Signing up was easy, very user-friendly. It only takes a minute, and it's just as easy to schedule an appointment. The entire process has been so convenient, and I was immediately comfortable with my doctor because all Plush Care doctors graduated from one of the top 50 medical schools in the country, and they're all highly rated by their patients. So I have peace of mind that I'm getting the highest quality health care. Plush Care makes it easy for me to get the excellent care that I need when I need it. With Plush Care, I don't put off seeing a doctor, and neither should you. No more excuses. So make your appointment today. Go to plushcare.com slash dailybeans. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash dailybeans. Again, plushcare.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Thank you all so much for submitting your good news stories. There are a lot of pod pet photos in here, which I love very much. Thank you for sending those. Whether they're whether they're relevant to the story or the confession or or the correction or not, just, you know, throw them in there. Why not? We'll share them in the newsletter unless you tell us not to. Our first good news submission is from Alexis, pronouns she and her. Alexis says, my 64-year-old mother has voted for Republican presidential candidates every election since the party lured her in with a set of potholders. <laughs> I am choosing not to confirm how my father voted, but I'm happy to report that my mother has denounced her kitchenware-based loyalty and sent her mail-in ballot in for Biden and Harris. I am also fairly confident my mother-in-law in Iowa, who regretted her vote in 2016 as soon as the Access Hollywood tape came out, is also voting for Biden and Harris. Maybe white women will get their shit together this year. I mean, not as a whole, because let's be real about white fragility. But here are at least two cases where older white women removing their votes from the spheres of influence of their even more fragile white cis male husbands. Oh, 
You just told us how he voted. I love it. Thank you, Alexis. I've been I've been wondering about this too. There have to be swaths of women uh, across, you know, the Midwest and the South, and and even in in some of the blue states who who might be married to Republicans or might be saying, "Yeah, go Trump," but when they get into that voting booth and they cast their ballots, they'll vote for Biden and Harris. And I'm excited to see how that turns out. Next up, good news from anonymous pronouns she and her. Hello from Canada, Beans Queens. I just wanted to say happy Canadian Thanksgiving and share with you some of the things I've been thankful for in these dark times. Firstly, my husband, who was laid off due to COVID, just got offered his dream job. He starts on Tuesday. Awesome. Secondly, I'm about to start my third trial in COVID times, which is a weird experience of people in a large room not sitting near each other (laughs) and wearing black robes for some reason. And lastly... After working hard to save so I can renovate our small bathroom into something modern, I now have the bathtub in my living room waiting to be installed. Construction does not start for a few weeks yet, so for the time being, the cats will have a new pedestal. Thank you for everything. I love you guys so much and recommend you to everyone I can. I read the Mary Trump book, and it was the first non-work reading I have done in a long time. Keep up the good work. For your viewing pleasure, I have attached a video of my cat, Bruce, showing off his tricks. He can sit, stay, spin, and a picture of my cat, Bane, being a cat in a box. Yes, they are in fact named after Batman characters. <laughs> Here they are. Oh. oh, hi, Bane. Bane in a box. That's wonderful. This, these pictures are great. On the video. Oh, it's a little rag doll. She's a little rag doll. Oh, oh yep. She knows tricks. All right. We'll put those out on the uh, newsletter. Next up. Correction perspective from anonymous pronoun she and her. I am so grateful to you in this podcast. It really helps me stay informed. If you ran for president, I definitely vote for you. I did, however, have a criticism, more of a perspective check, and I'm making sure to sandwich. Happy face. In one of your podcasts last week, when discussing the benefits of having your college paid for and other times throughout the podcast, you keep using the word contributing to society when referring to free colleges or health care and worthiness of individuals. As someone who cannot work due to multiple chronic illnesses as well as complete PTS or as complex PTSD, I often hear from others, mainly conservatives, about how me not being a contributing member of society. I should thank them for the small amount monthly I get, which trust me, I'm so grateful for. And I know way too many are denied and need it too. Uh, I myself fought for five years having four incurable painful physical issues, one degenerative and complex PTSD, and I have to fight every few years to keep it. I hate that. When it comes to free healthcare education, everyone, regardless of, uh, of if they can contribute to society, deserve it. I know you understand this, but since you're able to contribute to society, you might not understand how hurtful it is that um, being a good person worth is uh, in this society, the world really depends on how much one can contribute to society. I'm so grateful to you and your podcast. You understand the ins and outs of the government and explain all of what's going on in a straightforward way. So much of the news, so much that the news leaves out. I'm extremely glad I found your podcast two years ago. It definitely helped me get through all of this. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. I truly appreciate you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I am going to make a concerted effort to 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 not say that or modify it. When I say contributing member to society, what I'm what I'm trying to say and what I will be more clear about in the future is that I'm um, putting my taxes toward the common good, which includes, um, you know, uh, these entitlements um, and programs and benefits that people have earned and deserve. Uh, such as folks with disabilities, including myself. So 
But I appreciate you pointing that out. Yeah, I can see how that that would sound without an explanation or an understanding. Um, it can be it can be offensive. You know, I'm a contributing member of society, indicating that that's what you need to be in order to be worth something. And then also, a lot of times the reason I say it is because I'm thinking of it from a Republican perspective, where that's what they do think, that you have to be a contributing member to, of society. Uh, and it's so it's sort of a knife twist on them, really more than anything else. But well, um, well read, well understood. And I will uh, make sure to watch that in the future. And thank you for pointing it out. Next up, good news from Paul, pronouns he and him. Hey, Beans Queens, aside from crossing paths with both of you, both you and Jordan, from time to time over the years in real life via the San Diego comedy scene, I've been a huge fan of both podcasts since the kitchen days. It is the only podcast I listen to every day, and you turn me on to other great shows like I Disagree and Opening Arguments. I apologize in advance for the length of my good news, but it's a bit of a story. For some time, I have volunteered with a motorcycle organization that works with abused children. It's a big part of my life, and... Something that is really important to me. In June of 2019, we were riding before work with a child, and when coming to a stop, the back brakes on my Harley locked up. I had a split second to make a decision on what to do, and the only way to not hit any of the other bikes was to pull right and get out of the pack. Unfortunately, that was into the back of a truck around 45 miles an hour. My injuries were extensive, including a broken wrist, broken pelvis, and considerable damage to my face. I spent months in the hospital and physical rehab facilities, had eight surgeries, including plastic surgery to fix my face. Good luck. I got a bone infection, a couple of emergency procedures after surgery, complications, a pick line, and I had external fixator, an external fixator, that's two rods sticking 10 inches out of my pelvis, which made any movement painful. After more than two decades in my field and three years at the job I had at the time, I was fired by email because of my recovery timeline. It was tough to say the least. The only silver lining was to be able to watch virtually all of the impeachment hearings and testimony and listen to you, listen to your breakdown of it. In February of this year, I was finally ready to get out of the wheelchair and start walking on crutches. I was so excited to get back to some sort of life and do my PT. And then COVID hit. I ended up moving from the chair to crutches, crutches to a cane, and a cane to nothing pretty much on my own. I became very focused on my diet and workout routine. I went from simple leg movements in my wheelchair and using putty to strengthen my hand and wrist to doing 10 to 20 miles a day on a bike, weightlifting, and now I can even work out on my punching bag. I didn't think I would ever be able to do that again. I've lost a considerable amount of weight, and I'm probably healthier than I've been in, my, in many years. Granted, I have so much titanium in me that some of the pain will be lifelong, but the fact that I can walk at all is lucky given the circumstances. On to the good news. During my recovery, I came to the realization that my long career in hotel management was hollow and no longer worth my time. The money was good, but the stress was massive, and I didn't feel like it was doing anything positive for society as a whole. In my youth, I had serious, serious issues with addiction that, f that followed me into adulthood. I eventually moved away from where I grew up to escape it, and while I never used therapy or rehab, I often wish I had. I had lost several loved ones to addiction, including two just in the last year. With nothing but time to read and think, I decided I was done working like a dog to make rich guys richer. I got registered as a substance use disorder counselor and started taking classes towards my, towards my AODS certificate. That's alcohol and drug studies, other drug studies. While it will be a big pay cut to go from where I was, um, what I was doing to this, and it will take years for me to complete all the necessary education, I feel like this is what I should be doing. I recently got an offer for the exact job I wanted with a great nonprofit here in San Diego, and after 17 months of rest and recovery, I start tomorrow morning. The hours are perfect, they have an amazing reputation, and it will be a great place for me to learn while I continue my classes. 
It's a little scary to start over at the ripe age of 42, but I'm really excited about this next chapter. Now that I'm officially employed, I've increased my patron, bought some magic spoon with your promo code, and made a donation to Think Blue through your link. I'm trying to support as much as I can since I get a lot of news from you, and the good news stories regularly keep me from getting too down with the world on fire around us. I'm constantly impressed with your thoughtful and detailed breakdown of everything from the Mueller report to the stories that fly under the radar, and I applaud you for everything that you've achieved. Thank you for all you do and keep up the good fight. We will win in November and evict Agent Orange in January. P.S. Just for good measure, I've included a picture of my dog, Willow, visiting me before I came home. Be well. Look, there's Willow. Hello. Now I'm curious as to, you say you've run into us and we've done comedy together. Paul. Drop me a DM, Paul. I'm so glad to hear. Man, you've been through a lot. And um, this is just really touching. I, to, to, you know, to give up the money and do, and do what you think is right. To have an impact in other people's lives. The servant leadership. It's um, it's really amazing, and congratulations on this job, and thank you for writing in. <laughs> well, if you have a good news story, personal or professional or political, send it in to us. You can also send your corrections or points of order, like we got this week, with me saying, you know, I'm a contributing member of society without thinking how that could impact others. Um, and your uh, your questions for Mary Trump, you can send those in too. And you can also send in uh, any confessions that you have. You can all do that at uh, dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. For the Mary Trump questions, I've got links posted on the Facebook group in the pinned announcement. There's a document, a link to a document to, to submit your questions. We'll also be mailing that out to patrons. And again, thanks to all of our patrons who have bought one-year memberships for those who can't swing it. I've heard from several of them who are just so thankful. 23 days left to go. Until then, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>